Welcome to the City Reach Baptist Podcast. If you would like more information about the life of our church, please go to our website at cityreach.com.au or like us on Facebook. We hope you enjoy this message. Well, my name is Carl and I just want to welcome you here to church tonight. We are starting a new series called Victory that I believe is really going to encourage you tonight. And we're going to start off in Psalm 51. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 51, if you go about halfway in your Bible and just back off a little bit, you'll be in the Psalms. Then if you're new, grab that Pew Bible and it's in page 471. You'll land yourself in Psalm 51. Uh, If you were to go to my house for any length of time and you start rummaging around, uh, you would find this box of my uh, most prized possessions, a a box of trophies, right? And it's got um, most of the trophies in there over my life. And um, one of the trophies that it doesn't have in there that I wish though I still kept was in in year two or three, I was um, in this hurdles race. And I really, really wanted to um, race the boys in my class, but there were no boys to race, so I raced the girls in my class. And and so I was really excited to place um, third in that race against three other girls because one of them fell over. I was really, really excited by that, but I don't have the ribbon from that one. Um, One of the trophies that I do have is uh, is the the 10B Basketball Coaches Award, which was given out to the um, student who attended the most trainings. And so I was really excited by that trophy. It's a pretty big trophy, so it was one of my more exciting ones. The interesting thing about these trophies is that these trophies aren't there to remind me that I won. They're there as a celebration of the fact that I won. You don't often need to be reminded of the fact that you are victorious. It seems like in the passage that was read out for us tonight in the book of Romans that Paul is writing to this church in Rome and needs to remind them that they are in fact victorious which doesn't seem to need to happen a lot. There is either one of two reasons why you need to be reminded that you are victorious. One of those reasons could be that you forgot, that you forgot you're victorious, which can't be the situation for the church in Rome because they're acutely acutely aware of their position. They are so acutely aware that they are aware that all this distress and anxiety has come upon them, which leads to the second reason that you might be aware, might have forgotten that you are victorious, is that your victory starts feeling a lot more like defeat. And it is true that in the life of the Christian that God has set aside for you a life of victory a certain kind of victory, that as the circumstances in your life come to bear down upon you, that you might be experiencing the shame of your past or you might be experiencing the the worry of the situation that you're in or even confounded by complacency, that God calls us to walk in victory. That God's word does actually cause us to rise above the shame in our life, to experience more than just worry and to experience something even greater than complacency. So what we're going to do over the next three weeks is to discover what it means to walk in the victory that God has set aside for us. And tonight we're going to be dealing with this topic of shame. So tonight let us look at shame. A psychologist, Michael McKee, says that when we carry unresolved shame, it has devastating effects on us both physically and psychologically. He says that shame can lead to anything from headaches to backaches to full-blown depression to cardiovascular disease to gastrointestinal disease. He says that over time, the effect on the immune system can be life-threatening. Shame can isolate you 
and keep you in bondage. And it is true that it is not the life of the Christian. God did not call you into his family to deal with constantly having unresolved shame in your life. Shame is that heavy feeling that you get. I don't know if you've had it before, this, this, this sin that you've needed to confess, or maybe you've needed to confess this to someone else, that you've just had that pain in your back that you sometimes get, or that sinking feeling in your gut that you have this shame that you just can't kick because of something poor that you've done wrong. And that is a right reaction. It is a right reaction that when we do something wrong that we actually feel bad about the thing that we've done. But God has not actually called us to live this ongoing life of unresolved shame. So we need to deal with it at its root. John Piper says that if we want to battle shame at the root, we have to know how it relates to God. So enter Psalm 51. Look down in your Bibles at the start of Psalm 51, at the very top there. There's something strange written at the top there. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone to Bathsheba. If you're new to church, that might seem really, really strange to you, what is happening at the top of your page. Why is this situation written to a choir master? Who is David? What's that got to do with Bathsheba? And why is Nathan involved in this song? Well, psalms are an incredibly interesting thing for our for us to get our minds about. The word psalms comes from the Hebrew word telechim, which directly translates to the word praises. The book of Psalms is not a collection of dry and lifeless, unconnected commands written by a guy stuck in a cave somewhere, but it's a collection of 150 unified poetic songs, rich and deep in meaning, many of which were probably written by a guy stuck in a cave somewhere. But Psalms are a book of praises with purpose. They are songs that have this singular purpose within themselves and this unified purpose across the top. When I was 14 years old, yes, I kept a diary. It had a lock and it had a key. And the front, front cover of my diary, it had a picture of the Rugrats. Does anyone remember the Rugrats? You could probably play the Rugrats thing in school on your piano. It was my diary, right? A whole bunch of unrelated, unconnected, disjointed thoughts. I would, I would just draw in there everything that I was thinking about. I would write in there how I felt about my best friends, whether I hated them, whether I liked them, how I felt about my parents, whether I hated them or I liked them. I drew this picture named Carrot Man in there. I invented Carrot Man. And this one time that my mum got really angry at me, I took my permanent texture and went to the wall in my bedroom and drew Carrot Man, and it's still there to this day. <laughs> my mum was really angry when she broke into my diary, but not more angry than I was. She broke into my diary and found this, uh, this disconnected, unrelated, random musings of a person. That is not what the book of Psalms is like. Psalms are praises with a purpose. It's the collection of many writers, none more famous than King David. And it's not that Psalms have just their own individual purpose, but they are unified across the complete 150 of them, written over the 1,000, over the approximately 1,000 years of Israel's history. So what is the purpose of these praises? Well, it's revealed in the opening two Psalms. Many theologians believe that the Psalms were collated and then the Psalms were written by the biblical authors, Psalms 1 and 2, actually placed at the beginning of the Psalms as the thesis or the argument or the purpose of the entire purpose of the book of Psalms. 
So what is the purpose or what is the argument that Psalms puts forward? Well, purpose number one. Purpose number one is that there is a certain way to live a blessed life in the midst of an ungodly world. There is a certain way to live a blessed life in the midst of an ungodly world. Purpose number two, or argument number two, there is one divine king, the son, who will bring salvation to God's people. And it is in that divine king, that son, that we are invited to take refuge in. Listen to how the psalmist puts Psalm 1 forward. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. So if you want to be blessed, don't walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Purpose number one, there is a certain way to live in a blessed life in the midst of an ungodly world. Psalm number two. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him, in this divine king. Purpose number two, there is one divine king, the son, who will bring salvation to God's people. And it is that king that you're invited to take refuge in. So now take this purpose and let's come back to Psalm 51. To the choir master, this praise with a purpose. A psalm of King David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he'd gone to Bathsheba. What's the situation here? Well, David records this psalm for those of you that are new to the church world, and not at the mountaintop of his life, but really in one of the depths of his valleys. King David, the one whom God had chosen to lead his people, sleeps with another man's wife, not his own, one of his greatest soldier's wives. And instead of his sin ending there, he has the soldier killed in battle, and takes his own wife to be, uh, takes the other man's wife to be his own wife. And then the Lord's response is captured in one of the most understated sentences in the Bible. In 2 Samuel 11, it ends with these words: "But the thing that the the thing that David had done displeased the Lord." The Lord then sends a prophet along to David to convict him of his sin. And for the first time ever, David is not only convicted of his sin, but then records this psalm, Psalm 51. And what Psalm 51 is going to show us tonight is firstly, what we should do with our shame, and then three benefits of dealing with our shame in this way. So question number one, what should we do with our shame? Look down in your Bibles in verse one. It says, have mercy, me, mercy on me, O God. Why? According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Now, last week I was having a conversation uh, with one of our uh, City Reach interns, Francis, and I was asking for her to give me some feedback uh, on, my, um, on my performance as a young adults pastor. And what she told me was that sometimes she feels like I don't take criticism very well. So I screamed at her and kicked her out of my office. <laughs> I didn't do that. I thought, what would my wife say? That's always the, the telltale. I was like, what, a, what would my wife say? And I think that my wife would probably say that there's times in my life where I don't take criticism very well, which means that, so, that one of two things can happen, is that criticism will come to me rarely or criticism won't come to me at all. And it is true that our character will determine how and even if we are approached. Our character 
determines the approach of others. Well, what is the character of God? The character of God is revealed in the text by David. He reveals the steadfast, unfailing love of God. He reveals the abundant mercy of God. This is not the first time that David has called out to the Lord. The book of Psalms is littered with songs of David, feeling lost and alone and calling upon the Lord to be his refuge. There are, the Psalms are littered with David being stuck in isolation, fearing for his life and calling upon the Lord. The Psalms are littered with David feeling like everyone has abandoned him and he calls out to the Lord in absolute desperation. And his testimony is that if you call upon the Lord, you will experience the unending love and mercy of God. Why? Because that is his character. You might come to me with feedback and sometimes I'm okay and sometimes I'm not. If you have a heart that beats, you will encounter the love and mercy of God. That is the character of God. The purpose of this psalm is calling sinners to God's love. What should we do with our shame? We should take it to God. We should take it to the merciful and loving God. This is the whole purpose of Psalm 51. This is the whole purpose that is inserted into this, the, the book of Psalms for us. If you ask David what to do with your shame, he says, take it to God. And the whole purpose is this. If the most reckless sinner can find redemption in the love and mercy of God, then so can you. If God is willing to forgive Someone who has been so reckless. See, David's life was a, was a life of fruitfulness. He was a man that was chosen from a very young age. He was a faithful man that served the Lord faithfully. The Bible describes David as a man after the Lord's own heart. The Lord cherished David and David cherished the Lord. The sin that he committed is absolutely vile. And he turns to the Lord and does the Lord turn to him in vengeance? The Lord, the Lord turns to him in unending, unfailing love and abundant mercy. David knows, though I fail God, God will never fail me. Though I showed no mercy to others, God will show mercy to me. How are believers supposed to resolve their shame? They're supposed to take it to God because when you do, you will be met by the unrelenting, extravagant love and mercy of God. But you might ask this question, what does my shame have to do with God at all? I, don't, I feel shame. I felt shame in my past and I've dealt with it in other ways because really my shame has nothing to do with God at all. Look down in your Bibles in verse 4 of Psalm 51. It says this, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, the Bible does say in Matthew 5 that you should uh, seek to make amends against those you have sinned against. The Bible also says in the book of 1 Corinthians that we can even sin against ourselves. And so what David is doing here is he's saying he's using poetry to communicate something very important. Now, important lesson is that sin is first and foremost a sin against the Lord. 
It is primarily a sin against God. We do sin against each other and we do sin against ourselves. But all sin is first and foremost an issue that we need to deal with against God. I love going to the movies. I assume you guys love going to the movies as well. There are just seven conflicts that happen in every movie. If you've been to any movie for any length of time, you'll know that no matter what movie you're into, that there are these kind of repeating conflicts that happen in movies all the time, right? Seven of them. This is conflict number one, person versus person. Think Superman or Batman. Person versus self, think The Great Gatsby. Person versus nature, think every The World is Coming to an End movie that's ever existed. Person versus society, think 1984 or Ready Player One. Uh, person versus technology, think Terminator or iRobot. Person versus fatal, the supernatural, think Harry Potter or think of Lord of the Rings. Well, number seven, person versus God, think I could only imagine or the case for Christ. One of the problems that I run into in my life is that I get the priorities of my conflict all out of order. I think that the priority of my conflict is to deal with things horizontally before I deal with things vertically. I forget that first and foremost, my problem with my shame, the problem with my guilt, is that I have a vertical problem first before I have a horizontal problem. For some of us to deal with our shame for just a moment, for just a moment, we need for things to get a lot worse for us before they need to get a lot better. So please stay with me. But for us to rightly deal with our shame and to rightly deal with our guilt, things need to get a bit worse for us before they can get a whole lot better. You see, shame is the subjective reaction to objective guilt, right? So shame is an emotion. Shame is an emotion that we experience because of an objective reality. And so it might be that you have, uh, what happens to us is that we uh, might have done something that we're guilty of that is really insignificant to us. And then so we have little shame or we have no shame. Or we've done something that is really, really wrong. And what tends to happen with most people is that your shame will escalate and will go up. Well, to deal with our shame properly, what we do need to realise is that our guilt the objective truth of our guilt is actually a much bigger problem than we realise. Listen to the gospel spelled out to us in Romans 5, verses 6 to 10. Listen to the way that the Bible describes who we are. For while we were still weak, the Bible calls us weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, weak and ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, weak, ungodly and sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from his wrath, from the wrath of God. For if we were enemies, weak, ungodly, sinners, enemies, Here's the good news, right? We have, this, we have this problem. We do have a problem. The objective truth is that for most of us, we need to realise that we are much guiltier than we once thought. That we have done these horizontal things that have caused other people genuine and real pain and have caused for ourselves genuine and real pain and real consequences, horizontal consequences. 
But we do have a greater problem, a first and foremost problem, and that is a vertical one, and that we are separated from God and we are desperately in need of a judge who would save us. That is the situation that we're in. That's why the Bible calls us weak and ungodly and sinners. It is not to offend us. It is to reveal to us the truth. The truth of our objective situation. And it is when we realise the objective situation that we're in that we can actually press in and come to realise the greatness of God's love and mercy for us. Because though he calls us ungodly, he says he died for people that they might be called children of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? That God, if you have a heartbeat, God longs to pour out his love and mercy upon you. The good news of Romans, the good news of Psalm 51 is that God doesn't desire to meet sinners with vengeance. He longs to meet them with love. Tim Keller puts it like this. You are more sinful than you could ever dare imagine and you are more loved and accepted than you could ever dare hope. Paul puts it like this in Romans. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. The Father has grace for you. The Father has grace for you. We need to recognise that first and foremost, we have a vertical problem. So if you've looked at pornography this week, don't just take a break from the internet, though you should, come to God and experience his love. If you've stolen, don't just return what you took, though you should. Come and experience the mercy of God. And if you constantly find yourself pushing other people down so you can feel better about yourself, stop it, ask for forgiveness. Do those things, but more than any of those things, experience the love and mercy of God. You might be asking the question, how is the mercy and love of God going to deal with my shame? How does he do that? Well, it is revealed in the first benefit of his love and mercy. The first benefit of taking our shame to our loving God is that he forgives us. That God forgives us. Look down in your Bibles in verse 6. David writes, Behold, be sure to see. You delight in the truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. David both owns his sin and knows exactly where to find complete redemption from his sin. See, there are a number of paths that people often take to deal with their shame. One of those paths is the path of comparing yourself to others. Sometimes after we sin, we try to comfort ourselves. We do something wrong. We try to comfort ourselves by saying that what we've done is not really as bad as other people. We might say things like, uh, I've just, I, I might have cheated on my taxes, but I didn't murder anyone. Or I, I might have cheated on my partner once, but people do it all the time. We try to look at other people's sin and we try to say that if we're not as bad as them, then we must be doing okay. The problem with that is that there are only two different kinds of sinners in the Bible. There are the guilty and then there are the forgiven. God invites you to no longer be guilty. God invites you to come to him 
and to experience a forgiveness, a cleanliness that is actually experienced nowhere else in life. Look at verse 7 again. Purge me with hyssop. Hyssop is a branch that was used in ceremonial cleansing. Purge is a word that is on the offense. It is an aggressive word. It means the complete eradication or to bring about complete extinction. That which is there is no longer there with no trace. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. When you are forgiven, no sin, no stain will remain. And this is where God deals with our guilt very, 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 very differently from the world. It is that the forgiveness and grace of God is very otherworldly. What happens in our world seems to be is that if you commit a sin, then you can be remembered by that sin forever. You think about people like um, Bill Clinton. You think about people like Britney Spears. You think about people um, like uh, Mel Gibson. These people have done things wrong. They were wrong. They were embarrassing. They were shameful things. And now they carry those things around them. And it might have been years and years and years ago. They might have apologized to everyone in the world. They still carry this thing on their backs because no one forgives like God forgives. No one washes us clean like God can wash us clean. When God gives you a clean slate, He looks at you like he looks at Jesus, whiter than snow. That is the gift that God offers. It is not like this world. It is like Psalm 103. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. When does the east touch the west? Never. That's the poetry of the Psalms. That is a praise with a purpose. I'd encourage you to read the Psalms every day this week and read them as praises with purpose. What are the, what are the praises of the King of Israel trying to teach you about God? The, the, the one who has experienced so much love and kindness and forgiveness of God. And what can that teach you of your own life? Well, it will teach you that you can be whiter than snow when you approach God and ask for His forgiveness. What is the key to experiencing this kind of forgiveness? Look down at verse 6 again. It says, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. David proposes a kind of vulnerable confession, not an authentic confession. Being authentic is overrated. If you want to see someone be authentic, go on Facebook for five minutes. Being authentic is easy. Someone can sit on the other side of the world and they can hurl abuse at someone sitting on the other side of the world and everything that they can say would be, feels like that what I'm saying is true and what that other person is saying is true and they're both being authentic, but what are they not being? They're not being vulnerable. They would never say that if they're in the same room, would they? Because they're not willing to expose themselves vulnerably. Look what this passage says. You delight in truth in the inward being and the second part and you teach me wisdom. That's what vulnerability is. Vulnerability is authenticity plus inviting God to speak back into your own life. Many of us have been in seasons of our lives where we want to be authentic about how we're doing and the wrestling that we're going through and the sins that we're committing and the the horizontal damage that we're causing, but we've failed to invite the Word of God to be spoken back into our own lives. 
That's what David is talking about here, a kind of vulnerable confession. David argues that the real blessing of approaching God is found not in authenticity, but vulnerability, in, knowing, in God knowing the truth of your inner heart and allowing God to speak into that place. Theologian Thomas Watson said, Confession of sin shuts the mouth of hell and opens the gates of paradise. If you've ever doubted that the love of God wouldn't be enough to deal with your past, then stop doubting. If you've been holding on to shame as a result of guilt from something you did five years ago, then tonight there will be an opportunity for you to come and ask God for forgiveness. And his word promises that he will make you whiter than snow. You might have committed a sin a week ago. It might have been today. Before you came today, you might have felt like you were locked in sin and nothing was going to break you free. Well, if you're willing to come to God, then he will give you a clean slate. He will make you whiter than snow. But that's not all he will do. Benefit number two of bringing your shame to God is that he will bring about renewal. Look down in verse 10. It says, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Comes to the Lord knowing that he can get a clean heart from God. And renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold a willing spirit within me. Who's doing the work in this passage? Who's doing the work? It is God that is doing the work, not David. David isn't trying to involve himself in as many community service programs and volunteering that he can do and going down to his local shelter so that he can make himself a better person. In this passage, it is God that is doing the work. One of the paths that people uh, try to, to, to choose to um, deal with the shame in their life is the path of being a better person or the New Year's Day path. Whether you wake up on New Year's Day and you think about all the things that you're not doing very well and you start making a list. And what do you see at the end of that list? You see a very, very, very long list. I look at that list and I become tired. We look at that list and couch potatoes commit to doing exercise and people that haven't dieted commit to doing diets and people that are addicted to stuff commit to not being addicted anymore. It puts all this work on yourself where what David is saying and what the council of Scripture says is stop striving and start submitting. Saying, God, I actually can't do this in my own strength. There is a time that has come in my life where I just know that I'm not strong enough to keep up all this godliness without you renewing my heart. I need God to renew my heart. The problem with just trying to do more good is that it only deals with the symptoms. It doesn't deal with the disease that we need a renewed heart. I remember uh, this, is, this uh, October is coming up to my five-year anniversary and I, I'm so excited about having a weekend away with kids, uh, without kids. And, um, <laughs> oh, if, I, if there are kids on that holiday, man. Um, I appreciate your love. Um, and I remember a few years ago, we had the worst anniversary ever. And um, we, it was on AFL Grand Final weekend, and I loved that weekend. And um, 
we, it just happened that the kind of the days aligned with the dates and with AFL Grand Final and the next day my anniversary. And we went out and um, we did, I did the worst thing that you could do. Like the day's awesome. Like she, I've, she's got, I've got her presents and I've got her chocolates and a card. My wife loves cards and I remembered and I wrote her a card and bought her a ring and she remembered how much I love Xbox games and so she gave me an Xbox game and... <laughs> We went back to the place where I proposed to her. It was awesome. And I did the worst thing that I could do. I started a fight. And you know how when you're in a relationship, um, if you've ever been in a relationship or you've got a close friend or your family, you, just, you end up in fights and you don't know how you got there? You ever been one of those where you're, just at, you're at each other and you don't know how you got there? I know how we got there. We're arguing about Brad Pitt movies. <laughs> Sometimes you don't know how you got there because it's so stupid how you got there, right? I was right, but I can't... <laughs> I started this fight and um, things, were, things started funny and then in an attempt for people to be funny, people got hurt and I heard the worst things that a bloke can hear when you're going out on a date. The worst thing that you can hear is um, the person you're with say, take me home. Where does this come from where the people that you love you hurt in this way? Where does it come from where all you want to do is be loving and kind to people and you wake up in the, every morning with this renewed hope that you're going to be better? Why do we end up in the position where when we're trying to be kind, all we do is hurt people? We're in that position because we don't just need a clean slate. We need a renewed heart. We need God to be the one that is doing the work. You might actually not have an issue of shame here tonight, but maybe you just have an issue of striving. As you look around, you see all the people in church and you feel like everyone is so much more godlier than you, so you need to start working. You need to start serving in ministry. and So you sign up for all of these things or, or even worse still, you see that what everyone else is doing and you feel so much anxiety that you don't sign up for anything because you know you just can't be that godly. King David is saying through the word of God that it is not your work, it is God's work working through you. Renew a renewed heart. A renewed heart. Matthew 15 says, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Matthew 12 says, For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. What does that mean for us? It means that we need a renewed heart. So how do we access this kind of heart? It's by being willing to acknowledge that you can't get one by your religious performance. Look down in verse, uh, verse 16 and 17. It says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. God isn't looking for you to perform for him for his pleasure. He's looking for you to be broken for him for his pleasure. And that might hurt as you lay aside your idols. The idols that you cling to, like perhaps the praise of others or the praise you give yourself. But the reward of it all will be the receiving of complete forgiveness and a renewed heart purposed for his glory. Watchman Nia, a church pastor, said, God aims first to renew man's darkened spirit by imparting life to it because it is the spirit which God originally designed to receive his life and to commune with God. God intends, God's intent after that is to work out from the spirit to permeate man's soul and body. 
What he's saying is that right actions come from a renewed heart. If you want to change in behaviour, it will come from the inside out. Not only will God call you to godliness, but he will renew your heart and give you the power to do it. Can't stop gossiping? Submit to God and trust to him for the power to put your tongue towards godliness. Can't stop looking at pornography? Submit to God and trust God for the strength to put your eyes towards godliness. Can't stop feeling shame? Come to God and let his mercy and grace envelop you. God's love forgives you and God's love will renew you. But there is one more benefit, one more profound benefit. And that is the benefit of the testimony of a renewed life. The benefit of the testimony of a renewed life. Look down at these last two verses. It says, Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Uh, these last two verses can seem a bit alien from the rest of the um, passage that we've read. And the reason for that is that when David wrote this psalm at the time of um, the psalm being written, um, the walls were fine. And the walls in Jerusalem had not come down yet. And then so the commentators in this passage have got one of two, perspective, one, two perspectives. And um, the first of these that, that not too many people advocate for is that uh, David had this sense of foreknowledge about the walls coming down. And most people believe that's not true and there's no great evidence in the passage to be able to perceive that David had foreknowledge about the walls coming down. But something that the best explanation for these verses is that one of David's future scribes or successors, which would be common, actually added these verses in later at the end of David's life, which would not at all have been unusual. And if we're willing to side with, the most, with most of the commentators, then the revelation of these verses is significant. The writer of these verses has looked upon the transformation of David, this is significant, has looked upon the transformation of David and then looked at the sinfulness and rebellion of the people of Israel, and he's used the metaphor of the wall coming crashing down to say this, would you rebuild us like you rebuilt David? Would you rebuild us, a broken people, lost in sin and lost in rebellion like you did for David? Would you give me that clean slate, that renewed life, would you give that to me? See, I think part of the reason why there are so many people in Adelaide, our city, that think that churches are just filled with a bunch of people that are just set on keeping rules and their whole life is just about rule keeping, I think one of the reasons why they believe that is because that there are many churches that are like that. Where the sum total of their religious experience is rule keeping. And imagine what it would be for our city if all of us had this great revelation that God, the one who is unrelenting in his love, unrelenting in his mercy, wants to pour out that unrelenting love and mercy on people so that we might experience forgiveness unlike anything we've ever seen before and that we might have a renewed heart. That is what would be attractive to a rebellious and lost world because it always has been. That kind of remarkable love, otherworldly kind of love. 
Yesterday for me, I'll be honest, was incredibly challenging for me as a parent. And for those of you that don't have kids, you might not get this. And, and for those of you that um, have had kids and passed the, the age of my kids, you'd, you'd know this story better than I do. But my kid was just rebellious yesterday. Like to the first point where it was, it was just, it was the first time in my adult parenting life, I've got a two and a half year old, that was just really jarring. And um, I came, I, uh, I, was, I was off work yesterday and, and being off work is starting to feel like work. And um, we, we um, were at home and my boy, uh, there's a long list and I'll try, there's a long list. And he was like throwing himself on the floor. He was like, everything was no. He was taking the toys that we got for him and just throwing them up in the air. And we got food out for him and he just like took that food and threw it away. And I was like, that was going for hours. And then we put, I put the boys in their room and I thought they were asleep. And so Beck left, don't let your wife leave. Right? Don't let your wife leave. And as soon as they left, Jack comes out of his room. He can reach the door handle now. No one tells you that kids will be able to reach door handles at some point. And so reaches the door handle, comes out, and I, so I take him back and I smack him and put, his, put him in his room. And he has this big overreaction and he's crying his eyes out and that wakes Tommy up, right? So now I've got these two kids screaming their, like screaming their lungs out and I, like, I pick up Tommy and Tommy won't stop and then Jack comes out and I, like, I just, they're both screaming and I, I put them both back in their room and I just went into my room. Honestly, I was, at, I was two seconds away from crying my eyes out and I just felt like I think I'm all out of love at this moment. And I do think that in our city that we've got people that feel like they've been so rebellious that God is like this old balding man that sits in another room going, I think I'm all out of love for that. I think I'm all out of love. But the truth is, is that God's love is unrelenting. His love is otherworldly. It's actually like nothing we've ever known. Now, invitation for you to experience his love and mercy is not just for your benefit. It is for the benefit of this city. That people would know that coming to a relationship with Christ is not just about rule-keeping, it's actually about relationship, and that relationship is with a God that is full of unrelenting, abundant mercy, and that mercy is available for you tonight. I would love to be able to pray for you as the band can come back to the stage. And um, if you, you just feel comfortable just to bow your heads. I don't know your story, and it may be that your story is actually quite full of shame, and um, as I'm speaking, I, I, I've been, I was praying as we were coming in that you wouldn't be triggered by anything, but... I do pray that as the word was being preached that you would be reminded of the abundant love and mercy of God. I want to give an opportunity just to pray for you and ask that the spirit would soften your heart and would comfort you. Because I do believe that there are people here tonight that need to experience this forgiveness afresh and have this renewed heart. This word was written to God's people. If you're a person here tonight that has really struggled maybe of late or maybe of late, of letting go of some shame and taking it to God and experiencing his love and mercy, or maybe it happened for you a while ago, I would, love to, I would love to pray for you that you might experience afresh his love and mercy tonight. And if that is you, would you just raise your hand while no one else is looking around so I might pray for you? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Thank you, God. Thank you, God.
you um, in your walk with God feel like maybe you're not living the testimony in this city that you could because you feel like your life is not perhaps empowered by the love and mercy of God and you would just love to receive more strength to live in the love and mercy that God has for you as a witness in this city, will you just raise your hand so I might pray for you now in this moment? Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Once you put your hand up, you can put it back down. God, I just want to pray for those people in our church that firstly are struggling with shame over some guilt in their life. And I do ask that your love and mercy would meet them where they are now. That your love and mercy would call them by your grace, call them by your kindness towards repentance. That deep, vulnerable confession. And would they believe by the power of your word that you have washed them whiter than snow, that by your spirit you have renewed them for your glory. Would shame not be part of their story anymore? And God, I want to pray for those people here tonight that want to be a walking testimony of your grace and mercy. I just ask God that your spirit would empower them, that your spirit would soldier this word onto their heart so that as they go about their week it wouldn't be religious rule keeping that this world sees but people redeemed restored transformed for your glory